you can turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, that's where we'll be today as we continue our study of the book of John, looking at the statements of Jesus, the seven I am statements. This morning we'll be looking at Jesus, the bread of life. When I was 12 years old, I took a trip with my dad and some other dads and their 12-year-old kids to Colorado. We went hiking And I was, for 12 years old, a very, very little boy. I was very tiny for my age. I was the second smallest kid in my class in elementary school. But when you go hiking, you have to carry a big backpack. And we were going to be there for a week, so there's a lot of heavy stuff in it. And so it was little boy, big backpack. And we drove from Texas straight into Colorado up to about uh, 10,000 feet and immediately unpacked, got our backpacks on and headed up the mountain. There was no acclimation at all. And so it was a very difficult trip for me. It's five miles into our first campsite and it took forever. It took incredibly long because it was so hard to carry that backpack. The first maybe mile went okay, but after that it was just really painful. And finally, by about four miles, I actually just laid down. Because that's the nice thing of a big backpack. You can just lay on it. So I just laid down. I told my dad, leave me here. I'm just going to die here. It's pretty. It's okay. And so my dad just sat down next to me and we waited until our friends got up, set up the campsite, came back for me, got my backpack and helped me up incredibly hard. It took like almost the whole day to make it five miles in. Week later, we hiked out five miles back out and it went in a flash. It was so much easier. It was really quick. And there's a few reasons for that. I was more acclimated to the altitude by that time. And it was partly downhill, which helped. But the biggest reason that went quick is because I had been promised a burger when we got down the mountain. And after a week of eating uh, like, like uh, nuts and, and berries and whatever fish you can catch, a burger sounded like heaven. I could smell it. I could see it. I could taste it. We're not talking like a fast food burger that was frozen 30 minutes before. We're talking like a handmade juicy burger with cheese. I wanted it so bad. And that hunger drove me down the mountain in record time. And to me, that was, that was proof of something that as I've aged, I've seen is just true of all human beings. Hunger drives most of what we do in life. Most of the things that we do on a day-to-day basis are driven by some hunger in us. Now, sometimes that's a hunger for food and drink, but often it's hunger for deeper things like love and friendship, peace and security, hope and significance. If you think about it, you'll realize that most people spend most of their time in life trying to satisfy these hungers. That's what drives most of what we do. That's what we're looking for to meet these hungers in our lives. Well, what if I said to you that there is a way to satisfy all of your hungers forever? What if there was a way to satisfy all of these hungers, even the really deep hungers, the soul hungers once and for all in your life? Well, that's actually what Jesus is offering you in this passage we're going to study this morning. John chapter 6. When Jesus calls himself the bread of life, he is telling you that he wants to satisfy all of these hungers that drive you once and for all. 
So look with me, chapter 6, verse 35. We'll start with the most famous verse of all, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. That's the most famous verse, that statement, I am the bread of life. Jesus repeats that later um, in the passage. It is well known among us. We hear it often when we're growing up in church. But do you understand what it means? Do you really understand what Jesus is saying when he calls himself the bread of life? I want to walk you through that. I want to give you three things that Jesus wants you to understand about himself when he uses this metaphor, when he describes himself as the the bread of life. He's saying three things to you. The first thing he's saying is that as the bread of life, he can satisfy all of your physical needs. Let me show you that. Let's turn to an earlier point in, the, in chapter 6. Turn to verse 5. Many of you are familiar with this story. You've heard it before. Look in verse 5. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled... He said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, let's make sure we're clear on this. People often call it the feeding of the 5,000. That's an error. Because it tells us that there were 5,000 men. When you study that way of counting in the ancient world, it actually meant 5,000 families because they counted the head of household as one. And so you've got at least 10,000, probably 20,000 people that were in this place that Jesus fed. So he feeds 20,000 people miraculously. But what's the point? Why does he do it? Well, it wasn't to take away their physical hunger for food forever because like, their, their satiation probably only lasted a few hours. Like They had to eat again. So it's not just to take away hunger. He didn't do that in any kind of permanent way. What's the point of this miracle? Well, he is demonstrating that Jesus has or carries the power of God. That's what this miracle is about. This is a creator-level miracle, right? Because he takes a little bit of bread and fish and multiplies it. It means he's creating atoms and molecules out of nothing. Creation ex nihilo again. It's like Genesis chapter 1. He's creating out of nothing to show us that Jesus has the power to break the laws of physics whenever he wants to meet the needs of his people. Physics doesn't apply to Jesus. He can do anything he wants at any time to meet the needs of his people. He's been doing that throughout the book of John. So you have this miracle. Before this, he turned water into wine in an instant. There's no chemistry for that. 
That's supernatural. That's a miracle. Another place, he heals a lame man. So this man cannot walk. His legs are completely atrophied. And instantly Jesus heals him and the man stands up. So what's happening? Well, that means that Jesus created muscle tissue out of nothing. In another passage, he heals a man born blind. If you're born blind, it means you don't have optic nerves that have developed to make your eyes work. Instantly the man can see. So what is Jesus actually doing? Creation ex nihilo, creating optic nerve out of nothing. He is showing us that he has divine power. Jesus is God. That's the point of that miracle. So Jesus can break the laws of physics at any time to meet the physical needs of his people. But he doesn't do that very often, does he? Doesn't do that very much. When you think about the whole scope of human history and all the people on the planet, Jesus does not do a whole lot of miracles. Even in the book of John, he doesn't perform a lot of miracles quantity-wise. He fed 20,000 people one meal. What about the next day when they were hungry again? Day after that when they're hungry again, he didn't feed them then. And 20,000, that's a lot of people, but it's nothing compared to all of Israel. We're talking millions of Jews, many who were living in abject poverty. Why didn't Jesus perform a miracle to feed those people? And yeah, he healed a lot of people, but there were many, many more people who were sick and dying that he didn't heal. And yeah, he raised one guy from the dead. We looked at that miracle last week, but it was only one guy. What about the millions of other people who died on the planet during his ministries? Why didn't Jesus perform more miracles? Well, that gets to the heart of an objection to Christianity that I hear a lot. I'm privileged to get to speak to a lot of people who are not Christians, a lot who are agnostic or atheist. And one of the most common objections that I hear from people is, well, Blake, if God is real then why doesn't he show up right here, right now, and perform a miracle so that I can see it and believe? Have you ever wondered that? Why doesn't God just show up? I mean, he's like God. He's he's creator. He can do anything. He wants me to believe. So why doesn't he show up right here, right now, and do a miracle so that I can see it and believe it? I hear that from atheists who just want to know that God is real. Okay, God, do something here. I hear it also from Christians who are struggling with doubt like, like I do. And they just want to know, God, why, if you love me, why won't you show up right now? Jesus, why won't you do a miracle in my life so that faith will come easy to me, so that I can believe? So many people wonder that. Why doesn't God just show up and do something miraculous so that it would be easy for us to believe in his existence? Well, we get an answer, actually, to that question. In chapter 6, you find out why. God doesn't show up more often and do more miracles in your life so that faith would be easy. Look at verse 26. Verse 26, Jesus answered the crowd and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent, that is, believe in Jesus. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Do you see the answer to the question? 
Why doesn't Jesus do more miracles in your life, in the world's eyes, so that everyone can see and believe? Well, look at what they say in verse 30. What sign will you perform? What did Jesus just done? For this crowd of people, he took in front of their eyes five loaves of bread and two fishes and multiplied it into enough food to feed 20,000 people. That is what I call a sign. So they just saw Jesus do God's stuff in front of them, right in front of them, 24 hours earlier. And now they're asking for another sign. Why? Because miracles are not sufficient to produce faith. Let me repeat that. Miracles are not sufficient to produce faith. Because the reason that human beings like us struggle to believe in God, it's not primarily an intellectual issue. We're not struggling with faith in our logic and in our reason. It's a heart issue. These people did not believe that Jesus was sent from God, not because of an intellectual problem, but because of a heart problem. They didn't believe because they did not want to believe. And no amount of miracles will ever fix that. And ironically, they actually proved their point by quoting from the Old Testament. They point Jesus back to the manna in the wilderness. If you're not familiar with that story, let me remind you or or tell you about it. So about two million Jewish people came out of Egypt where they were slaves in the book of Exodus. And they moved into the desert. And in the desert, there was no food, not surprisingly. There was no food that they had with them. There was no way to grow food. There's no H-E-B on the corner. There's no food bank if you're poor. There's just sand and rocks as far as you can see. So the people desperately needed food. They knew hunger and starvation far more than we ever will. They desperately needed food, and so God worked a miracle. He sent bread from heaven. They called it manna. Every morning, six days a week, manna would just come. It's just another creation out of nothing. It would fall from the sky to the ground, and they'd go collect it. They were given a double portion on the sixth day, so they had enough for the Sabbath. That miracle happened every day for two million people for 40 years. And so just think about it. That generation, they woke up and every single morning of their lives, they saw God work a miracle. And how did that generation respond? Well, if you read the story, rebellion, idolatry, disobedience. That was the same group of people that made the golden calf and worshiped it instead of God. Same group of people that got to the border of the promised land. God said, go in. And they said, no, thank you. And marched the other direction. They are proof to us that miracles cannot produce faith because faith is not primarily an intellectual issue. It's a heart issue. The Exodus generation did not want to trust God, just like the crowd does not want to trust Jesus. And so Jesus isn't interested in working another physical miracle for them, some miracle to produce bread for them. Again, he's not interested in that because he knows that they have a much deeper need than food. Jesus understands what these people really need is not another meal. They need a change in their heart so that they can come to believe and trust God. And that's what Jesus wants for them. See, why doesn't Jesus perform more miracles in your life day to day to provide for your physical needs? Because he cares so much more about your spiritual needs. Jesus knows that's what you need. That's what the world needs. 
He could provide bread for every person on earth for the rest of their lives, and it wouldn't create faith. And so Jesus focuses on spiritual needs. And that's the second thing that we see Jesus do in this passage that explains what he means by being the bread of life. When he says he's the bread of life, yes, it means he can satisfy our physical needs, but he cares about something much deeper than that. It means that he will satisfy our spiritual needs. So look with me, chapter 6. Let's pick it up in verse 32. Verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now, right off the bat, we've got a confusing verse here. Verse 35, because I believe in Jesus. I've come to Jesus, and yet I am always hungry. I'm, I'm hungry right now. There's a little voice in the back of my head that's pushing me to speak faster so that I can dismiss us and go to my office and eat a granola bar. That's what I want, because I'm always hungry. So what's going on here? Well, you got to understand this passage. you got to understand that Jesus uses a lot of metaphors here. He's not talking about hunger for actual literal food or thirst for literal drink. He's talking about deeper things, about our spiritual needs. He's talking about hunger for love and friendship and security and peace and hope and significance. That's what Jesus is promising to fulfill in this passage. He wants to satisfy your deeper spiritual needs now and forever. And we learn later in the New Testament, in the book of Galatians, how it is that Jesus satisfies your deeper spiritual needs. We're told in Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, But the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise. When Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, what he's done is when he ascended into heaven, he gave you, if you're a believer in Jesus, he gave you his Holy Spirit, and his Holy Spirit comes to live inside you and supernaturally produce in you, fill you up with Jesus' love, Jesus' joy, Jesus' peace. And and all of that love, joy, peace, patience, it's love, joy, peace, patience that no one can ever take from you. There's no situation, no circumstance, no person, no power in this world that can steal those things from you. They are yours forever. Jesus has filled your heart with his love, joy, peace, patience, all of those things that can weather any storm. We're told in history books, actually this is verifiable, in 320 A.D., There was a group of Roman soldiers in the modern nation of Turkey who accepted Jesus. And because they accepted Jesus, they were no longer willing to offer sacrifices to the emperor. That's what all soldiers were required. You had to offer sacrifices and worship the emperor as your God. They were unwilling to do that because they had given their lives to Jesus. And their commander wasn't pleased with that. He ordered that they recant. They would not. And so he beat them. He whipped them. He imprisoned them. Still, they would not recant. They would not deny Jesus and worship the emperor. And so, in desperation, he had them stripped naked and made to stand on top of a frozen lake in the dead of winter. So all 40 of them are standing there naked on a frozen lake 
in the middle of winter and they are told you can get off the lake the moment you deny Jesus. Now, what did those men need in that moment? Well, physically speaking, they needed warmth. They needed clothes as bad as you need air. They were not going to stay alive without warmth. So they needed warmth and Jesus said no. There were no clothes that dropped from heaven like manna. Jesus did not satisfy their need for warmth. He did not clothe them on high. Instead, he performed a greater miracle. He gave them courage. He gave them courage and peace and security. And as a result, they stayed on that ice until they froze to death. Yeah, 40 soldiers, they died. But their example, their story spread throughout the army, throughout the entire Roman Empire. And within 60 years of their death, the entire Roman Empire embraced Christianity. And here we are 1,700 years later on the other side of the planet celebrating these guys. Why? Because Jesus performed a greater miracle in their lives than just giving them clothes. He gave them courage that allowed them to stand firm in love and faith, even as their bodies froze. That's what Jesus offers to give to you. Significance, hope, security, peace, love, joy, patience that no one can ever take away. That can satisfy you and fulfill you even on your worst days. Jesus, he's promised in this life, no, he's not going to satisfy all your physical needs, but he will satisfy all of your spiritual needs. All of them. But there's more. Because that's not where the passage ends. Jesus promises to satisfy all of your spiritual needs in this life, but this life is not all you get. There's a life after this one, and Jesus begins to talk about that in the next part of the passage. Look at verse 36. But I said to you that you've seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And that promise, raise him up, that's resurrection. We talked about that last week. Jesus is saying, yes, I'm going to satisfy all your spiritual needs in this life, and then in the next life, it's not just your spiritual needs I'm going to satisfy, it's all your needs. I'm going to give you a new perfected body that will never hunger again. You will never thirst again. Every need that you have will be instantly satisfied for all of eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. That is what Jesus is promising you when he says, I am the bread of life. He will satisfy you in every way for all eternity. Jesus is the bread who satisfies. But there is a third sense in which Jesus is the bread of life. Third and final sense Jesus, to be the bread of life, had to be broken. He had to be broken so that we can live. Look with me at verse 51. Starting in verse 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now that little passage there has confused people for a long time. Key is to understand, again, it's a metaphor. Jesus isn't talking literally about cannibalism. That doesn't fit anything else we see in the Bible. Now when he talks about eating and drinking, he's talking about belief. Those are metaphors for belief. You come to Jesus and believe, and he fills you up. He comes inside of you to live, just like when you eat or drink something comes inside of you. And when he talks about his flesh and his blood, he's not talking about what we do in communion. A lot of people, particularly Roman Catholicism, sees it that way, that Jesus is talking about the Mass, about Eucharist, about us breaking and and eating the, the flesh and blood of Jesus. No, that's not what's going on here. He's talking about his death on the cross. This is a metaphor for his death on the cross because when he was put on the cross, Jesus was broken and torn like a loaf of bread. And his blood was spilled out like a drink being spilled. It's a metaphor of death. And the point of this metaphor is to tell us that that eternal life, this gift that you have, this eternal life that you have, was incredibly costly. Eternal life is incredibly costly, but not for you. It was costly for Jesus. A lot of people hear that our church is grace Bible Church. We're called Grace Bible Church because we believe that salvation is by grace alone. You receive eternal life as a free gift. There's nothing you have to do for it. Now, some people hear that, and to them, it sounds like cheap grace. So you don't have to obey God to keep your eternal life. You don't have to submit to Jesus as your Lord. You don't have to bow before God and commit to follow him. Doesn't that make grace cheap? No. No, grace is the costliest commodity the universe has ever known. But it doesn't cost you anything because Jesus paid it all. Grace was purchased by the pain, suffering, torture, and crucifixion of the Son of God. No greater price has ever been paid in the history of the universe. So grace is incredibly expensive. It cost Jesus his life, but he willingly paid the full price of grace so that you can have it for free. So eternal life costs us nothing because it costs Jesus everything. He paid the full price, and that's what he's getting at when he calls himself the bread of life. He chose to be broken and torn. Just literally, think about a loaf of bread. You go to a restaurant, they hand you a loaf of bread. What do you do it? You cut it. You tear it. You pull it apart. That's what they did to Jesus. And he chose that. He decided to be torn and broken so that we can have life as a free gift. So yeah, grace doesn't cost you anything. You don't have to obey. You don't have to work. You don't have to submit because Jesus paid all the price. That's what it means when Jesus says that he is the bread of life. So what do we do with that truth? 
So now that we understand what it means when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, so what? what? What do you do with that reality? How do you act upon it? Well, first and most obvious, believe. Whole passage talks about believe. That's what Jesus commands them to do. That's what he commands us to do. Look again at verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. It's as simple as that. You got to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sins and rose from the dead to give you eternal life as a free gift. The moment that you believe that, you receive eternal life forever. Okay, but wait, you say, Blake, it's just so hard to believe. It's just so hard to believe that God exists, that this guy who lived 2,000 years ago named Jesus is actually his son, that he died and then rose from the dead to give me heaven as a free gift. That's just so hard to believe. If that's you, if you're saying, wow, it's just hard to believe in Jesus, I've got good news for you. Join the club. I completely understand that. Yeah, faith is hard. It is difficult living in a world full of pain and suffering to believe that there is a loving God who exists. It is difficult to believe in Jesus as his son when we are surrounded by billions of people who do not believe. Faith is hard. That's why the crowd says no to Jesus. They hear this message from Jesus and they say no to him. Look at verse 66. Verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. This is a bad day, ministry speaking for Jesus. Now, he doesn't care. He's God. He knows what's going on. But from the perspective of like size of ministry, it goes from huge to very, very little. Because most of the crowd leaves him for good at this point. Why do they leave Jesus? We'll go back up to verse 41. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down into heaven. They were saying, it's not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. The crowd can't get past how ordinary Jesus looks. He grew up among them. When they say the name of Jesus, like you hear Jesus and you think, oh, God, heaven. They just heard it like Kevin. It's Kevin. Kevin grew up here. He's the poor carpenter's son. We've been watching him for the last 30 years. You're telling me he's God? He doesn't have a crown, doesn't live in a palace, no robes, no standing army. And that's God. That's really hard to believe. In fact, it was so hard to believe that Jesus says, yeah, you're not going to believe in me unless my father draws you. Unless my father opens your eyes to see that I am his son, unless my father draws you to me, you're not going to believe. And so most of them walk away. God didn't draw most of the crowd that day, but God did draw the disciples to Jesus. On this day, look with me, verse 67. God is working in the hearts of Jesus' disciples. Verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Because everybody else has just left. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And notice Peter doesn't say, No, Jesus, this makes perfect sense. I understand what you're saying. No, the disciples found Jesus as confusing and shocking as the crowd did. 
They didn't know what to do with Jesus. They struggled with doubt and and uncertainty throughout Jesus' life. And yet Peter says, Jesus, where else am I going to go? I haven't found life in anything else this world offers. You are the only source of hope, of peace, of security, of joy I have ever found. And so I'm not going to abandon you even if I don't understand you. Notice that's the difference between the disciples and the crowd. They both were confused and shocked at Jesus. They both struggled with doubt, but the crowd responded to doubt by walking away. The disciples responded by doubt by, to doubt by clinging to Jesus because they believe Jesus is our only hope. I have found that verse, verse 68. It is inscribed on my mind. I've memorized it. I say it to myself all the time because I'm like Peter. I struggle with doubt. I struggle with confusion. There's so much about God I don't understand. So much of his plan for this world makes no sense to me. And so in the midst of my doubt and confusion and struggle, I turn to Jesus and I wholeheartedly say, where else am I going to go? I've looked at everything else this world offers and none of it has life. All of it is empty. You, Jesus, are my only hope. That's why I cling to him. And so if you struggle with faith, if you find it just too hard to believe in Jesus, let me encourage you, please, go look at all the other options and then come talk to me. Go check out atheism. Really look at it. You will find as much confusion and doubt and uncertainty in atheism as in Christianity, plus no hope. It's a bad trade. Check out Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, all of them, and then come talk to me. What you will find is that no other worldview, no other explanation of reality can give you hope. None of them can give you life. None of them can give you joy because it is only Christianity where the founder of the religion chose to be broken and crucified in love for us. Atheism, Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, none of them offer you that. So go check out the alternatives and then come talk to me and I think you will find there's nowhere else to go. Jesus is our only hope. And so even when we do not understand him or what he is doing in our lives, we cling to him because like Peter, we say, there's nowhere else to go. You, Jesus, are my only hope. Only in you do I find words of life. And so I encourage you, check out the other options and then believe that Jesus is your only hope. So we believe. What, what do we do second with this truth that Jesus is the bread of life? Well, we share it. Bread is meant to be shared. You're sitting at a table. They bring you a loaf of bread. Please don't eat the whole loaf of bread. That's not how you act at a restaurant. You break it and you share it with other people. That's what you're meant to do with the good news of Jesus. You share it with other people. You, you tell them the good news, that there's a God who loves them, who died for them, who rose from the dead so they can have eternal life as a gift. But wait, Blake, wait, wait, wait. If I talk to my friends about Jesus, it's going to get real awkward. They're not going to like that. It's going to be uncomfortable. They'll probably reject it. Okay, understand that. Might be, might be real awkward. They may never want to talk to you again. But let's, let's think about reality for a moment. If the Bible's true, if John 6 is true, then what do you now know about your friend who doesn't know Jesus? You know he or she is starving. Right now, they're starving. Even if they don't realize it, they're starving. Not for food, not for drink, for something far more. They're starving for peace. They're starving for hope. They're starving for unconditional love. And you have the answer. 
You have the only solution to their problem. The only thing that can fill their hunger because you know Jesus. And so do you care about them enough to risk a little awkwardness in order to save their lives? Because that's what this is about. This is about eternal life or death. There's nothing more important than this. So are you courageous enough, like those 40 soldiers standing on a frozen lake, are you courageous enough to risk a little awkwardness in the relationship to speak words of life to someone who is starving? They need Jesus. There is nothing else that will ever satisfy their hunger. Do you love them enough to share? So please, I want you to think about somebody that you can share with this week. I want you to have that person's face, their name in mind. And I want you to pray for an opportunity this week to share Jesus with them. Talk to them about Jesus and then pray that God would draw them. That he'd open their eyes and help them to see Jesus as the bread of life. Finally, as the men head back to prepare communion, the third thing that we do with this passage is actually communion. It's a perfect passage to celebrate communion. If Jesus is the bread of life, then we as his people are called to celebrate that fact. And that's what communion is. It's a celebration. Communion is not when you get something from God. Let's be clear about that. When you take the little bread and the cup, you're not getting salvation from God. You're not getting grace from God. You're not getting something from God. Communion is about giving something to God. You are giving thanks to God for the gift of eternal life he's already given you through Jesus. So communion is our chance as a, as a family, as a body, to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. If you want a metaphor for communion, think Veterans Day or Memorial Day. What do we do on Veterans Day or Memorial Day? We put flags, American flags, out on the street to, to celebrate the freedom that we have and remind ourselves what freedom cost the soldiers who fought for it. Yeah, that's communion. We're celebrating the freedom from sin that we have and reminding each other. When we take that piece of bread and we take that juice, we're reminding each other what our freedom cost. The body and the blood of Jesus cost him his life. And so in communion, as the men, if you want to, men, if you'll come forward, as they pass the elements, what I'm going to ask you to do is take these few moments to say thank you to Jesus. I want you to think about Jesus literally as bread that was broken for you. I want to picture what it, I want you to picture what it costs Jesus to purchase eternal life for you. Take these next couple minutes and say thank you to Jesus for his gift of life. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we remember this morning that you are the bread of life. We remember that you purchased eternal life and forgiveness for us, but it cost your own life. You had to be punished. You had to be tortured. You had to be crucified so that we could be freed from sin and death. We praise you, bread of life. 
that you willingly were broken and torn so that we could be saved. We thank you for the gift of life. We praise you and thank you that it doesn't cost us anything, that it's free for us, but we acknowledge that it costs you everything. We thank you, Jesus, for your grace and your mercy and your love. We pray that you would help us to believe more deeply that you are the bread of life, and we pray that you would help us to share that good news with others. We pray, Father, help us to be courageous. Please fill us with your spirit, and through him give us boldness. Give us a willingness to go share the good news of Jesus with everyone. Let us be willing to risk awkwardness. Let us be willing to risk rejection for the sake of saving someone from starvation. And pray, God, that you would use us, that through filling us with your spirit, you might draw many people to Jesus Christ. We pray that millions would come to know you through the witness of this church. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your gift for us. In your name we pray. Amen. You can stand. Let's respond together in worship.